So this morning, we are obviously in Luke's gospel still, and Luke is interested in showing us that Jesus is the friend of sinners. One of the titles that he has picked up just from the way that he's interacted with people who were notorious for their sin. And particularly, this is culminating 35 verses of this chapter, which are asking the question, who is this? Who is this that can forgive sins? Who is this Jesus? And Luke wants us to ask that question, and he wants us to find the answer, that he is the friend of sinners, that he's the son of God, that he is the one who can forgive because he is divine. Now, what we have here is not a separate account of the same incident. We have a separate, I believe, incident. There are two different events where a woman, a different woman, comes in to Jesus and anoints his feet. And most scholars would agree with that. One of them is picked up in all three of the Gospels towards the very end of his ministry. And that, in that account, it's, the person is named, it's Mary of Bethany, who is the sister of Martha and Lazarus, a good friend of Jesus, um, a, a, a woman of high standing, a good, reputable citizen in that town. And in that event, she's anointing Jesus' feet to prepare him for burial because Mary of Bethany believes what he says, that he's about to be crucified. Now I suspect, uh, this is, now I'm speculating here, I suspect Mary of Bethany got the idea from hearing about this event. In this case, it wasn't preparation for burial. It was simply an act of adoration. And we don't know the name of the woman here, and we don't know what city it was in. But we do know a few things about her, and that she had a reputation, a bad reputation. Now, there are two characters. There's this woman of the city, and there's this Pharisee named Simon. And we're going to see a contrast. In fact, Jesus is going to publicly contrast the two. But I want to back up just for a second and think about some of the different reasons why people might approach Jesus. You know, a Pharisee invites him to have dinner at his house. This woman comes to do this act of devotion. I was thinking about kind of a scale. If you'll imagine a scale, and on the far right side, my right, your left, let's say, is love love for God, and a desire to worship him, express devotion back to him, which is what this woman is doing. If you want to take the other extreme, it might be hate. These would be such people as the, let's say, the militant atheists. Not people who are atheists, but the militant types, the ones who seem to be fighting against God. It's not the, you know, the opposite of love is not hate. It's actually ambivalence, right? If there's no God, then why do you spend so much time arguing against what is nothing? I was forced, uh, forced, I say, because it was not enjoyable. I was forced by one of my professors to watch about 10 minutes of a talk by Richard Dawkins, who's one of those military athe uh, militant atheists. And he's a, he was a microbiologist, and he's become a philosopher of atheism and has spoken out very aggressively against God. But the interesting thing is, he spends a lot of his waking hours thinking about Jesus but it is not to express love. It is to defame Jesus. It is to tear people away from him. And it is, I wonder if it is out of a distorted type of uh, understanding of God. He's threatened by God, so he tries to make God to not exist. That would be on the far end. But let's come a little bit over, because I hope that's none of us. Um, it might be, maybe that's where you are and you're here because you're trying to tear down Christianity. I don't know but you're welcome if you are here because I think if you will approach Jesus, you'll learn some things about him. But take one step over and you might find the religious types. These would be the people who build a life that looks good. They are earning their salvation. They are building their case to say, I deserve heaven or whatever they want. I am a good person and yet 
they have to approach and consider Jesus because he's just too prominent of a figure. He's too important to religious thinking. And the religious type wants to get him figured out. Who is this Jesus? Because they want to put him in a category. They want to compartmentalize him. Here's my Jesus shelf. I'm going to put him over here, and then I have all my other things. But the thing about it is you can't get Jesus figured out like that. But rather, you need to let Jesus sort you out. But the religious types want to sort him out so that it doesn't mess with their works righteousness, with their efforts to appear good, with their desire to save themselves. Now step a little further along the scale, and you might come to those who are, um, I I wrote down here, well-to-do. And whether that means affluent or it just means experiencing success, there's the person who is um, doing well in this life. Maybe it is finances, maybe it's promotions at work, maybe it is um, whatever, business breakthroughs, good healthy relationships, love, whatever it might be. This person tends to approach Jesus out of almost superstition, like I've got to somehow pay homage to this this Jesus so that it doesn't get messed up, like a lucky rabbit's foot or something. I better say a prayer because things are going well and I don't want to get on his bad side and have him take all this good stuff away. Or maybe even slightly more blasphemous would be to say, why do I need Jesus? What can he do for me? I'm going to go to Jesus and see if I can have a little bit more. Give me some more prosperity, you know, and it's about me. Move even further down the scale of why people would consider Jesus, and you come to those who have come to a place of real need. I have a need. Nothing I've looked for, nothing I've looked at in the world has met this need. And now the question becomes, will Jesus accept me? Could he save me? And I think the woman was at that place at one point, and her answer was, yes, he can and he will. And so then she begins to move through faith to a place of expressing worship and love and devotion. So think about that scale. Maybe I'm missing some other major milestones along that scale, but somewhere in between there is where people fall, if they're going to even think about Jesus. And we've got one that I would say is the religious one and one that is the loving worshiper out of uh, the faithful one. So Simon the Pharisee, he's the religious type, and he invites Jesus to come have dinner at his house. Why? What's, what's his motive? Why would he do that? Now, I can think of a couple of reasons. One is it might give him a higher standing in the town that this well-known rabbi was, was willing to come and have dinner at his house. Jesus, the miracle worker, the, the one who does interesting things, who has a crowd following him. He's coming to your house. Wow, you must be important. Maybe it's for entertainment. He's got his other Pharisee friends there, and it's entertaining to have a dialogue with Jesus. I mean, every place you go, you're not going to fall asleep at this dinner. It will not be boring. Now, it might offend you. It might be a confrontation, but it will not be boring. It will be entertaining. So maybe that's why. But I can tell you why, one reason why he didn't. It was not because he was in a place of faith. And I say that because of verse 39. Once the woman starts anointing Jesus' feet, Simon the Pharisee in his heart says, if, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is that's touching him. That's from a place of doubt. A place of faith would be, since this man is a prophet, he clearly knows who this is that's touching him. I wonder why he's not pushing her away. Why is he receiving this adoration? Why is he letting her touch? There would be a a different reason for the question. But Simon is coming from the perspective of doubt. If he were a prophet, he would know what type of woman this is that's touching him. 
And now the woman. All right, you have to understand something about this dinner. It's diff- there are two really weird things to us, culturally weird. One is that random neighbors and townspeople can just come into your dinner party. But that's how it was. The windows were open, the doors were open. A, a dinner party was a big public event, even in a private residence. Now, that doesn't mean they were all invited to sit at the table, but the people were invited, and then others could come and stand on the edges and just watch. The closest thing I can think of to this is if you've ever like, had a birthday party and you went out to a restaurant with a dozen people and they pulled the tables together and you brought your own cake to sing and celebrate and you light the candles, and then the whole restaurant is singing happy birthday, right? And people are high-fiving you and shaking your hands saying, hey, happy birthday. They, they weren't invited, they're just there. And so they're paying attention and they're interjecting even. So that's the closest thing I can think of. The other thing that's really weird is this idea of reclining at table. We sit down to eat. They reclined at a low table on cushions, and they would, they would be lined up sort of like spokes going out from the hub of a wheel on their elbow like this so they could eat with their right hand and lean on their left elbow, and their feet were out, like kind of laying, which doesn't to me seem comfortable or good for digestion, but... That's what they did. That's how they did it. So in a situation like that, a woman could slip into the party and be at the feet of Jesus without really being noticed. She's not crawling under our kind of table. She's on the edges of this conversation that whatever they were talking about at the table. So now she's there and she starts to adore Jesus and starts to do this sort of stuff. Now, why did she come? Well, for one, it was premeditated. She had a plan. She had her ointment, and she brought it there. And her plan was to anoint Jesus with it. But I don't think she expected it to be such an emotional thing. She got to that place and was overcome I, for a, a number of reasons, I think. Uh, one, I, I, was re- I came across this passage in Zechariah about what can and will happen when we gaze upon the one who was willing to die for us. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David... And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, the one whom they have pierced, they shall mourn as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. When they look upon him, when they look upon the one that was pierced, I don't know if, I suspect many of you have had this experience. I don't know for sure, but it happens to me all the time. I mean, even in that one song, the last song we were just singing, I felt that, like, I was so aware of, of the, the extravagant love of God who would leave the 99 and go out and pursue, right? And even as you start to think of it, you get overwhelmed. Maybe you've been here for the Good Friday service, or maybe you've been here on Easter morning, or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's just a random Sunday, and for whatever reason, something from the Word or from a, a song lyric, it just like pierced you. Right, so this woman of the city, which is a euphemism for a prostitute, this known sinner, this woman comes to him to anoint his feet, and maybe for the first time in a long time, he didn't want to use her, and he didn't disdain her. And she was just broken right there. So she starts weeping. And then, of course, she she sees a need. She's weeping on his feet, which are dirty. They're dusty. He had sandals on. He walked on a dirt road to get there. And so she just starts put these tears to use, but I don't have a towel. So she lets her hair down, which of course is a shameful thing for a woman to do. It's very vulnerable, intimate. It's, you know, open. It's something you would not do in public. And then she just starts to wipe his feet with her hair. Now you have to understand in the Jewish culture, even a Jewish slave was not 
expected to wash the feet of the master. You could make a Gentile slave do it, but you couldn't make a Jewish one because that was even beneath a Jewish slave. So the Jewish slave would bring a bowl of water and you would wash your own feet because to touch the feet was not appropriate. But to wipe it with your hair, to kiss a foot, that was really, really scandalous. And this is going on right here. What would a respectable rabbi do? Kick her away. Rebuke her. Get away from me. I don't want to be associated with you. You're defiling me with your sinfulness touching my feet. I don't want people to think we have any kind of a relationship. Go away. What does Jesus do? He receives her worship. He accepts what she's doing. He probably looks at her with very kind eyes. And then he starts a dialogue with Simon's minds, minds, mind, his thoughts, his ideas. So if he's a great prophet, well, okay, maybe he is because he knows what you're thinking. So Simon, I want to say something to you. I'm sure that caught Simon off guard because he's thinking these thoughts like, what kind of prophet is this? And I have something to say to you. Okay, say it, teacher. And then he tells this little simple parable. You know, a moneylender had two people that were in debt to him. They couldn't pay back. One, it was 50 uh, denarii is two months' wages. So one, it was two months' wages. Another, it was 10 times as much, 20 months' wages. They both couldn't pay him back. He canceled both debts. Which one will love him more? I like how Jesus implies that they will both love him, right? The only response is love. Which one will love him more? And then Simon says, well... I presume, I suppose, the one whose debt was greater. You have judged correctly. And then Jesus does something so interesting. He says, he looks down at her and says, Simon, do you see this woman? In fact, I circled it in red in my Bible. Do you see this woman? It's not, it's not a, it's, it's an intentional question to get to deeper things. Of course everybody sees the woman. That's the event that's happening. Everybody's paying attention to Jesus and this woman and how the interaction is going to go. So when he says, do you see this woman? He's not saying, Did you, are you aware somebody's crying and anointing my feet? He's saying, do you really see her? Do you see what she's doing? She is loving me. She is worshiping me. She is responding to me in a way that is kind and hospitable. And then he, he totally points something out. He says, I came into your house as your guest. You invited me to dinner in your home. And you didn't give me a bowl of water to wash my feet with. But she is washing my feet with her tears. And you didn't greet me with a kiss. Since I've come in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. And you didn't anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet. Look what she's done. Right? And, and he points out, yeah, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who loves little has been forgiven little. Now, it asks the question, it should, do I love Jesus? How much do I love Jesus? Because then that would point you back to how much has he done for me? Don't let the word order mess you up here. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Don't think, okay, if I want to be forgiven, I have to go love God in some way, and then he'll forgive me. The word order is maybe a little confusing. It's very clear throughout the entire Bible that we love God because he first loved us. His grace always comes first. His initiative comes first. Our response then is love. And so what Jesus is saying is, you can look at this act of devotion and love, and it is evidence that her sins have been forgiven. 
And it's even further um, amplified when he gets to the end. He says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Not your love for me, your faith in me. So the message of the gospel Jesus preached was, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So this woman had seen Jesus and likely in town, she'd heard his teaching. She'd seen uh, him be kind to other people, maybe a tax collector, maybe a different prostitute, whatever. She'd been around enough to know this guy is different. He welcomes sinners. He's forgiving. He's got power. God's power is with him. And she believed, and then she began to express love. And so the expression of love showed that there was this forgiveness happening. So powerful because his kindness leads us to repentance. Our love comes from his love, which is first. I, I really like um, the play and the book and the movies, Les Miserables, and it's uh, such a powerful story, full of redemption, and there's a scene in there where Jean Valjean, who's the protagonist, who's um, in a really bad place in life, he's done some awful things, he's, he's destitute now, he's hungry, he's cold, he um, ends up coming in contact with a bishop in the church, and the bishop invites him, he doesn't know he's a bishop yet, he knows he's a priest, but he doesn't know he's the bishop, invites him into his house and serves him dinner on their good expensive silver, silver plates, all nice stuff in the bishop's residence, and feeds him dinner, and he's kind to him, and he, he puts him up for the night, despite the other people's objections. Don't let this guy in here. Are you kidding? Don't do this. And so he's, he's there, and he sees all this silver, and in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean gets up, steals the silver, and darts out of the house and goes off to sell it. Of course, he can't get away with that. He gets caught right away, and they say, where'd you get this silver? And he says, well, the priest at the place gave it to me. So what do they do? They drag him right back to the bishop's residence, knock on the door, the bishop opens, here's Jean Valjean in, in the arms of these officers with a big ton of silver. And they say, is it true that you gave this? And the bishop's response, yes, and you left so quickly that you forgot the candlesticks. And he goes over and takes two candlesticks and gives them to this man. And he, and he blesses the officers for doing their duty and dismisses them, and now there's an interaction right there. Jean Valjean, who's just been unfairly treated to his favor, to his benefit. He's not being arrested, not being thrown in jail. And the bishop is serious about take this silver. And he says, take this silver and go leave your life of crime. Live for good. You've been bought. You belong to God. And of course, it, you know, it breaks him on the spot. And as he as he goes through the rest of the play, he lives that out and, and resolves to heal and do good and restore. And the whole thing is about that. It's all about redemption. It's really powerful. If you don't know the story, go watch it or read it or study it or read, read the synopsis of it even. It is the gospel. It's the gospel. Her salvation came from her faith because God was so good to her. He pursues us. Now, I want to ask you, do you identify more with Simon as you read through this? I mean, think about it. We always, when we're reading a story, we put ourselves in the place of one of the characters. Are you thinking, if I was the woman, how would I do this? Or are you thinking, I've invited Jesus to my house. How am I treating him? Now, in your defense, Luke sets it up and writes it well so you identify with Simon, not with the notorious sinner. But I want you to do the opposite. I want you to identify with her because she's the one who actually gets healed by this ultimate physician. Look what happens. She's a woman who has nothing but shame. Her identity here is a woman of the city. But he changes that. 
She's no longer known in that town as the woman of the city. She's known as the woman that is the friend of Jesus. She's known as the one that he forgave. She's known as the one that he welcomed. He received her kindness to him. He didn't reject her. And and he says, at the very end, he says, go in peace. So she stands up and right with her head held high, dignity restored, a new identity as a friend of God, walks through the room and goes out into the town. She has something that Simon doesn't have yet. I want you to identify with her. Now, if you're going to compare yourself to her, sure, your sins may not be quite as many. Maybe they're worse. I don't know. But if you're going to compare yourself with a holy God, then we're really splitting hairs down here and God's up here. So we come as sinners aware of how much we have offended God. And yet he's the friend of sinners. He receives you and accepts you. And so you're no longer uh, fill in the blank, Mike the liar, Mike the materialist, Mike the prideful, Mike the whatever. I'm now Mike the forgiven. I'm now a a son of of God. I'm adopted into his house. My identity has been changed because of this ultimate physician, this healer. He's healed my identity. He's restored my dignity. He's given me the power of the gospel to live in a totally different way. How amazing and good news we have. How, how, How awesome is this? Now, I want you to look at her and kind of follow her example. So she saw Jesus. She considered him. She looked at his teachings, heard what he said, and then believed, trusted, and repented of her sin and came to him and then began to express love and devotion. How do you express love and devotion for the Lord? What are some ways? Well, John uh, 14, 23, Jesus tells us, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. There, look at the word, do what Jesus says. It will be an expression of love back to him for what he has done for you. And may God give us his spirit to help us do this increasingly so, more and more, become lovers of God because he is a friend of sinners, because he loves you. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I thank you for, again, for this account. I thank you even more that you are a friend of sinners. For if that were not the case, I wouldn't even dare to stand here and speak your word. But you have accepted me, You accept each one of us as we repent and turn to you. Lord, would you help us to become worshipers who express our love for you both in public and in private, that we might receive that gift of friendship with you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.